0: Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Nika Pasquale. Nika is the founder of Urban Remedy, a certified B corporation offering organic non-GMO and low glycemic juices, meals, and snacks. She is a licensed acupuncturist, herbalist, certified Chinese nutritionist, and the author of Urban Remedy, the four-day home cleanse retreat. Anika has grown Urban Remedy from one singular storefront to nationwide distribution in order to make healthy food more accessible to more people. In our conversation, we discuss what it's like to be a female founder and board member of a company that has raised over $70 million while also staying true to her mission of healing people and the planet. She reveals how she combines acupuncture and Chinese and functional medicine with cutting edge nutrition and lifestyle modifications to create optimal health. And we cover the healing power and energetics of food, regenerative agriculture, and how it relates to living in harmony with nature, and how to improve health and nutrition using foods, herbs, and spices. And before we dive in, I want to let you know about some of our programs on the Commune course platform. If you're interested in courses on functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, Ayurveda, and hormone balancing, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. It really makes a huge difference. Okay, so without further delay, I present to you, Nika Pasquale. Nika Pasquale, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be talking to you today.
0: I'm excited to get into it and and learn everything that you're doing at Urban Remedy and how you're applying your food philosophy as food is healing to the products that you make and the business that you run. But maybe we can start with some of your background. I know that you have Uh, significant background in traditional Chinese medicine. You're a licensed acupuncturist and herbalist and certified Chinese nutritionist. So I wonder how Chinese medicine influenced your food philosophy.
1: Yeah. Well, I've always loved food I'm half Jewish and half Italian and so I grew up with like the Jewish bubby and then you know my okay. Italian grandmother who both you know just cooked 24/ 7. so I've always really loved food and cooking it's always been a passion of mine and actually you know I did my pre-med because I knew I wanted to do something in health and I knew I' The Western medicine wasn't the way for me. And so I wanted to study naturopathic medicine, but at that time, it was illegal in California. And so I was like, well, I'm going to study Chinese medicine and become an acupuncturist because you're considered a primary care physician in California, so I could treat the things illegally that I was interested in treating that time at that time. And so I jumped in to acupuncture school, which is a four-year program, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to do this. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into um, and how in-depth and um, insane the program is. I don't know if you know anybody else who's gone through it, but um, it's a full-time, you know, it's a, it's a major life change. And when I started studying um, food as medicine, it was so interesting to me to learn that every food has a taste and a temperature and associated meridian and actual functions um, that Chinese, in Chinese medicine, they've been using for thousands of years. And that was so exciting for me to My mind, you know, the wheels started turning and I was like, oh, this is so cool. I could make PMS cookies and I could, you know, at that time um, I had the most amazing, one of my uh, instructors was incredible and he would take us to Chinatown and they would actually, you'd go into the restaurant and they would feel your pulse and then they would give you a soup or a meal based on what they felt in your pulse. And it was just, it was so magic. And um, anyways, it just, it really inspired me. And then, you know, once I started my private practice, I also was really lucky because I got to study with some amazing doctors in functional medicine right after I was licensed. So I was kind of incorporating those things. Um, that I was learning about, I got to study with Dr. Robert Marshall, who started Premier Research Labs. And he was just the coolest guy. And he would talk about the energetics of food. And he would take us, I used to shadow him, and we would go at lunch and go into the grocery store. And he would talk about like organic blueberries compared to regular blueberries or, or whatever it was, tomatoes, regular tomatoes versus organic tomatoes. And really the energetics of the food, meaning where the food is grown, the soil the food is grown in, if it's grown in sunshine and, you know, obviously fertile soil, um, the energetics and vibration of that food will raise the energetics and vibration of your body. And and so learning about that and then combining that with what I'd learned in Chinese medicine was just really exciting for me. Um, So I had my private practice for about 11 years and I started... Treating a lot of people that had chronic inflammatory diseases, people that were pre-diabetic, people that had all kinds of pain syndromes, rheumatoid arthritis, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just thought, really noticed that people that were willing to change their diet would get better faster. And people that were not willing to change their diet, and there's quite a few people that really don't want to change their diet, Um, would not get better faster. And they would have to come in, you know, once or twice a week to maintain the effects that they were getting from the acupuncture. And it was kind of interesting. Like, I remember a couple people coming in that said, you know, I, my doctors told me I have prediabetes and, you know, I, I might have to, I have to take this drug or I might have to try metformin or some drug. And, I said, you know, if you change your diet, you will not have to do that. And so, and I would help them and give them the dietary um, guidelines and people, a lot of people just didn't want to do it. They just wanted to keep eating. They would rather take the drug and, um, and keep eating that way. And so then, you know, also it's about acceptance, like it's your body. And so that's great if that's, you know, what you want to do, um, But I started, you know, I was really interested. I met this doctor who taught me about infrared saunas. And this was probably in, probably like 2004. And he was telling me how he has healed all these people. And I'd never heard of a sauna before. And so I got super inspired. And I was like, you know, I'm going to start doing retreats um, with my patients. So I took about 10, no, I think it was about 12 people. And they're all patients of mine to Stinson beach. You and I were just talking about that to this really big house. And um, I had people who were like severely chronic ill to people that just maybe wanted to lose a little bit of weight or whatnot and did all live raw food, juicing, um, you know, dehydrated food and just made it like super beautiful and amazing experience. And then incorporated things like infrared sauna, stuff like that. And after five days, it was absolutely incredible the change that I saw in every single person that was there, like huge reductions in pain. Um, People just felt inspired, you know, their brain fog was gone. And so for me, I was like, wow, this is incredible that in five days you could radically change the way that you feel. And so that was really kind of how this journey started for me.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, we're reminded that the body is always in process and it is really designed to move towards wholeness and that's what I think of as healing and it is amazing that even in the over the course of 4 or 5 days you were able to achieve the results that you were with let's say you know, blood sugar levels. Um, And and that one is a big one for me, because about a year and a half ago, I discovered I was pre-diabetic, but I didn't even really know. Wow! I think you're about 90% of the people that have pre-diabetes don't know they actually do. Mm -hmm. Um, But with just some relatively minor tweaks in my diet, I was able to regulate my blood sugar levels. So you know, yeah. it's amazing what you were able to accomplish and, and how that uh, propelled you forward on this journey. You know, I'm curious. I mean, Chinese medicine doesn't really um, like raw foods and salads as much. It actually tends to like, you know, steamed white rice even. So yeah. I wonder how you kind of got your head around dealing with that.
1: That's a, <laughs> that's such a good question. And people ask me that question a lot. Um, Well, for example, when I was doing my retreats, I would always have, I developed this um, mineral broth where I'd put different herbs in there and seaweed and things like that, and um, shiitake mushrooms and whatnot. And it was um, a very mineral-rich broth. And so you would drink that throughout the day. And I've always, even with Urban Remedy, I'm always looking at the temperature of the juices, for example. So... Um, I usually incorporate like turmeric or ginger or warming herbs into the juices. And I also let people know that you don't have to drink juice freezing cold out of the fridge. Like you can take your juice out, pour it in a glass, let it sit there for, you know, 25 or 30 minutes so that it's not cold. And you could do the same thing with salads. Like if you're making a salad, everything doesn't have to be cold. You can even warm up your lettuce, um, But the ingredients that you use, because everything, you know, lettuce is very cooling. But once you add something like ginger or cayenne or peppers, then you're offsetting the temperature. It's like a herbal formula, right? We have herbs that we use that are extremely hot and toxic, but then we'll add like gan sao, which is um, licorice that reduces the toxicity and kind of cools and other herbs that help to cool the heat and balance the formula. So I try to look at um the food that i developed the same way but you are right like my my herbalist that i work with you know he doesn't eat anything cold um but i have to say i i've done i you know i've done so many different diets i've been i've done raw food for a long time and vegan and everything and um you know some people really can't tolerate raw food and some people can but i've seen people heal from things like cancer and, and, you know, lots of different pain syndromes by incorporating a raw food diet for a short time. And and there's different people that can't tolerate that many vegetables and whatnot. So it really depends on the individual and, you know, people that are very young or very hot, they tolerate cooling foods more than somebody who's like cold and damp. And then for those people, it's probably not the best thing for them, but it's all about balance, you know?
0: Right, right. Yeah. From the little I understand about Chinese medicine and its relationship to diet, um, it seems that dampness is something that you want to avoid or decrease within your system. And Is that because it essentially clogs and blocks meridians such that, that qi cannot circulate properly through the body and then you can address that through dietary change or through acupuncture?
1: Yeah. And, and there's a place for dampness and moisture, right? Because it's, mm. it's the yin fluid of the body and we need our yin, our blood is yin, you know, and damp. Um, but I would say with a Western diet, right? If we're eating a ton of dairy and ice cream, you know, that's cold and damp or tofu is very cold and damp. And so dampness, you know, can cause chi stagnation and block chi, right? And so There's chi, moisture, um, and moisture um, relates to blood. And um, they all work together, right? So you want your chi to be moving and help your blood move your circulation. And, you know, there's this great saying is, you know, of looking at the body as a garden, right? So there's streams, you know, like our blood is like a stream, like a garden. And that, we need that to moisturize our skin and you know have healthy blood flow. Um, but then when you have too much moisture and there's a storm outside and the rivers are overflowing, that's too much moisture and dampness. And that can happen in our bodies as well. So there's different areas that like dampness, and there's like the spleen and stomach hate dampness. So if you eat things that are cold and damp, your spleen and stomach are you're gonna have poor digestion.
0: Hmm.
1: You know that's one of the things
0: yeah so that it really is absolutely yeah, it's about becoming intuitively aware of your own internal um, equilibrium or dis- disequilibrium and yeah. um, really becoming aware to how you cultivate that balance um within you you mentioned a few a few um common herbs like ginger and I think ginseng maybe and licorice what are some of the herbs that you um utilize the most just in your own life but also in uh urban remedy products?
1: You know, because of the FDA, I try to really use food as medicine as much as I can because once, you know, I created this beautiful herbal tea for example that I was so excited to launch and um Unfortunately, like I actually used to have actually it was launched and I did not make it anymore because the FDA got in. And, you know, anyways, I won't get into that story, but um, so I, I try to really utilize food as medicine. So I use things like dandelion and burdock root for blood purification and liver health. I use a lot of turmeric and we juice it as well as use the powder sometimes and then ginger same thing fresh ginger has a different um, medicinal property than dried ginger so we'll so I'll use both of those um and then I use you know different medicinal mushrooms like my lion's mane and reishi and things like that hmm. um I would love to incorporate more um Chinese herbs the other thing is like what we just talked about since everybody has a different constitution um you know, it's really better if you're doing herbal formula to work one-on-one with an acupuncturist or an herbalist, because one thing that's good for, for you might be very detrimental to somebody else. You know, like some people have a lot of dampness. So, you know, it's really interesting. I see there's a, there's companies that um, use like Hesha Wu um, for skin and hair, but and they they give it to people alone. And in Chinese medicine, we never give it alone because it is the most damp cloying herb, one of the most damp cloying herbs out there. So when we use it in a Chinese medicine formula, we use herbs to transport and transform dampness so that you don't have the side effect of um of creating stagnation, like damp stagnation. Right. right. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So you're always using herbs within a matrix. Yes. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's very rare that a Chinese herbalist will give you a single herb mm-hmm. because the herbs work synergistically together. Um, and you have to understand, like I was talking about the toxicity of specific herbs or if herbs are too hot and you add something cooling, it just creates this neutrality. So you're not going to end up being too hot, for example.
0: When you were treating your patients, um, some of whom were probably uh, highly inflamed, and, you know, I'm not sure you were doing, like, biomarkers, C-reactive protein biomarkers, etc., but there are um, other kind of indications of inflammation in the system, and I'm curious, were there foods that you found to be the most pro-inflammatory in these people's diets?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, without question, um, you know, I would say genetically modified grains, wheat, corn, soy, um, and then just highly processed foods. So if you're eating especially GMO sugar, with, you know, it's really the standard American diet, right? If you're waking up and eating, you know, a sugary cereal with non-organic dairy and then like a hamburger for lunch. And it's like factory farm meat with, you know, um wheat and potatoes cooked in canola oil or soy oil. You know, you're you're eating a um a sludge of just inflammatory causing foods. And so I think it's a you know, a really serious problem. And if you look at, um, you know, our farming system and our industrialized farming system and, you know, the pesticides that are used and, and how it's degrading the soil, um, it's just reflective of what it's doing to people's bodies that are eating that food. And that's something that I'm really passionate about is educating people on, you know, the difference between organic and non-organic and conventional and GMO, non-GMO, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe we can poke at that a little bit, uh, deeper because there are so many different organic certifications. I think there's at least four. Yeah. Um, and could you pull those apart a little bit and, um, also point to kind of where urban remedy falls within, uh, that matrix?
1: Yeah. Um, so they're certified organic and, um, Interestingly, when I first started Urban Remedy, I was like, well, I know just out of everything that I've done, I'm like, I'm definitely going to start out with being certified organic. And so I got the paperwork and I thought I would just fill it out and be done. But um, one of the problems with being certified organic is that it's it's extremely expensive, extremely time-consuming. And for a business like ours, um, you know, where we have so many ingredients, we have to hire people just to manage the paperwork because you have to trace every single ingredient back to the farm that it came from, which is a really beautiful thing, right? Because we can tell you exactly in your salad if you called us and we looked up the lot code, you know, where the farms that we got all these ingredients from. but I guess the the slight problem with it is it's very expensive and we want to try to make organic farming less expensive for the farmer and for the businesses so that we can offer that discount to consumers. But anyway, that's a side note. So certified organic um, is really the cleanest food that you can buy because um, it doesn't incorporate toxic, toxic pesticides and chemicals like glyphosate. It's automatically non-GMO. And um it, um, you know, there's things like if you look at farming, um, you know, the animals have to be treated, you know, in a specific way, um, they can't be factory, you can't like, it, they can't be factory farmed. There's no sewage sl- sewage sludge involved. Um, so there's all of these things that encompass being certified organic, which has to do, um, with, you know, creating a, a food product that's grown in soil that is not degraded and dead. And so, um, and then they recently started, um, doing, and we offer a a few of these items, um, certified regenerative is a newer thing and that automatically is organic, but, um, it, it goes another layer up where it's certified regenerative, uh, to the soil. And and it's an amazing, I'm actually going to do a podcast on it in a couple of weeks, but it's Hmm. absolutely incredible. And then there's non-GMO, which in my opinion, I think should never have necessarily been a label because I think it's very deceptive to the consumer because a lot of people, I've talked to so many people like, well, I go to the grocery store and everything I get is non-GMO certified. And it's great in the sense that then you know you're not eating genetically modified, but that is not organic, which means it's still probably splayed, sprayed with glyphosate and different herbicides. Um, and it doesn't mean anything about the soil. It just means that they're not using GMO seeds. And a lot of people think that non-GMO certified means organic, but it doesn't. And then there's conventional, which obviously means um, it, it doesn't mean that it, it's GMO. I mean, there's certain things that they don't use GMO seeds for, but... Um, but if you are eating um, conventional produce, for example, most likely it's sprayed with um, herbicides and pesticides.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you feel that there's any place for biotechnology in, in agriculture. And I think you know most of us who are in the health and wellness space, we bristle against anything. Uh, that might be considered gem- genetically modified, and, and I think that inclination is because we generally conflate genetic engineering with big cash crop like Roundup resistant seeds. Mm-hmm. And there's every reason to be on high alert about Roundup resistant seeds for many, many reasons. And we could talk about you know glyphosate and the the negative knock on impacts of glyphosate for some time, and maybe we'll, we'll touch on that. Yeah. But GMO doesn't necessarily mean Roundup resistant. So like, for example, I remember there was this, uh, um, the papaya like, for example, in Hawaii, which was being like completely decimated by this ring spot virus. Yeah and it basically was just crushing the entire farming industry and i yeah. think cornell university and hawaii university collaborated to develop a genetically engineered virus resistant seed it didn't have anything to do with herbicides and pesticides per se and this really did bring the papaya industry back to life in hawaii and you know then there's like golden rice which is biofortified With beta carotene to address vitamin A deficiencies, et cetera. So, I wonder if you see any place for genetically, genetic engineering um, in the world of food.
1: Um, To be honest, I don't. And I, you know, I might be, um, you know, I definitely have a strong opinion on it. I think that in the research that I've done, the Golden Race is a great example. I mean, it to- it's totally failed. And if you really look into it and what it's done to India um, and the farmers there, it's destroyed, um, you know, thousands of farmers' lives and they were promised. I mean, it's a whole story that probably we don't want to go down that road. Um, and the same thing happened in Hawaii. Um, if you look at Hawaii where this is happening, the people of Hawaii did not want um did not want those seeds on their island and they did it anyway and um there are there was i guess schools that were and I, I heard about this a while ago, so I hope I'm telling you know, I hope I'm saying it correctly, but there were schools that were around the farming, the farms that were growing the papayas with the GMO seeds. And supposedly it was making the communities right next to it very sick, especially the children that in the schools that were there. And so, um, I just I don't I think there's other ways of working with things like that that don't have to include GMOs. I think my, you know, perspective, I mean, I think there could be a place for everything, but when you're adding proteins that have never before been in food, um, I think it's a dangerous game. And I believe that there are certain things that we can do that we cannot recover from. And I think that nature, um, has so much wisdom and always has, and the answers, usually lie in living in harmony with the natural world and not necessarily technology. I mean, if you look at, you know, where we are right now and why our soil is so degraded um, and you know, we have, we've, you know, the monarch butterflies are, you know, close to extinction and things like that. And bees, you know, when you look at the reasons why it's related to what we've done as human beings, Um, and spraying pesticides and crops. And um, I think that we're in this mess because we keep trying to use technology to get out of, you know, to solve a problem. But really, I believe the problem is we become so disconnected to nature and we live so out of harmony with the natural world that we we are the ones creating problems. Like if you really look into um, you know, feeding the world, there's plenty of food. I, we don't need GMOs to feed people. Um, but I think that's a lie that we were fed based on, um, you know, the Gates foundation and all that. And it's, you know, and I'm not saying that as i cons- I'm not a conspiracy theorist, theorist around this stuff, but I've, um, studied it. And, um, I have some friends that are part of the, um, that they have a group called, um, Oh, no, now I'm forgetting what they're called. Um, There are a bunch of doctors and scientists that study GMOs, and I've gotten to go to some of their conferences. And anyways, I just, yes, I I don't believe that's the way.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a very interesting debate. And I think, you know, on some level, farmers have been genetically engineering seeds for... Millennia, but they've been doing it very slowly with crossbreeding plants, et cetera, and essentially giving time for evolution and nature to work together in conjunction with the development of new kinds of seeds. And at the same time, maintaining control over their own inputs. That's a whole (laughs) other issue, right? Um, You know, once you um, accept genetically modified seeds, you're often seeding control over your inputs as a farmer to, in many cases, multinational corporations. And and that generally doesn't end well. Um, But I think it's it's an interesting debate because it's, you know, my, like, as I said, my general inclination is to bristle against anything GMO and Mm -hmm. to trust nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, at the same time, I think it's interesting. Is there ways that we can use technology um, responsibly uh, to biofortify? So anyway, I'm not sure there's a... Yeah,
1: I would just make one comment on that. I would say that when farmers are um, you know, using... I, I wouldn't say that they are genetically modifying um, their own crops. I would say if you're taking a fish gene and putting that in a tomato, that's something that no farmers are doing. So I think it's really important when you look at the genes that are being put into our fruits and vegetables, it's not like they're taking necessarily one tomato and hybridizing it with another. They're taking genes that have never been um historically would never ever in nature be put together and sometimes i think that can be very dangerous
0: i totally agree i mean uh gain of function agriculture doesn't sound like something that we totally want to get into yeah
1: and Um, really the thing is like why like nature is, is perfection it's like our bodies like we were talking about earlier you know, we're taught in our society that, you know, we might need a pill or, you know, something to make us healthy and or you watch TV and now it's like, oh, here's this. My son and I have a joke about this. Uh, we were watching a, a show and this commercial kept running over and over and over and it was called Skyreezy. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that, but and we were making jokes. We we're like, what the hell is Sky Reason? At the end, they're like, well, it can cause, you know, cancer or death or all of these things. But anyway, when you watch this and you're a young kid, it kind of um it's kind of normalized. Like disease is normal. Like it's really normal to get cancer. When 50 years ago it was not normal. And so we're really taught to disassociate from our bodies and knowing. That our bodies have the most beautiful innate healing capacity and they don't need all of those things to be healthy our bodies can do it on our own we need good sleep clean water sunshine you know really good food and just those very simple things really your body can heal from so many things so i just think it's important to remind people that you know you already have that capacity built into your body
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we touched on some of the pro-inflammatory foods. I think you kind of nailed the checklist there. Fried foods with vegetable and seed oils, all the artificially sweetened foods, sodas and sweetened drinks and juices, um, refined grains, um, obviously. Well, actually, what is your general... um, Viewpoint on meat consumption as it pertains to inflammation.
1: So, I think first of all, it's a hard because people are so. Um,
0: I know I'm setting you up for them. controversy. So yeah.
1: it's okay. So this is my honest feeling, and I it was you know I just spoke at um, a vegan conference recently,
0: mm-hmm. and.
1: I said a couple of things that really pissed some people off that were there because I was talking about some of the fake meat and the plant-based meat. And I was saying they're super inflammatory and the ingredients are all infl- you know inflammatory causing. They're not, um, you know, it's not healing food that lowers inflammation. And um, you know, I was just kind of bringing that to the tension and there's a, a feeling that if, you know, it's a plant meat and you're not eating an animal, that it doesn't matter. But for me, it does matter because I'm looking at through the lens of a healthcare practitioner. So I'm thinking I would like you to eat food and I would like to eat food that naturally lowers inflammation. So I think that, um, factory, and there are people that are going to eat meat no matter what, right. We're never going to get everybody to stop eating meat. So Excuse me. I would say that if you are going to eat meat, eat organic, raised meat. Um, if you're eating meat that is factory farmed, then you are I, – I don't know. Did you ever see the movie Eating Animals?
0: No, 50%. I don't think so.
1: It's such a great film. And uh, one of my investors um, was one of the producers. And it's not an anti-meat film film at all, but it really talks about factory farming and what happens in factory farmed animals. And it, if you watch it, um, you know, you probably would never eat factory farm meat again because truly the animals are treated so horrifically. And so I always say like, you're really making, you know, that's one point where you're voting with your dollars and, um, pasteurized organic meat is a little bit more expensive but now you could get it at costco and you know lots of different places like trader joe's and stuff like that so i would say if you're going to eat meat then choose organic pasteurized grass-fed if you're doing obviously red meat Um, and if you're eating it in its natural state um meaning you're not it's not like a highly processed hot dog or you know bacon or things like that or sausages Um, I think that there can be health benefits to it. Um, But I think it really depends on the person and especially your moral beliefs around eating meat. But I do think there is a place for very clean, organic, pastured meats. I mean, and and even if you look in Chinese medicine, um, meats are used as part of the medicine, right? To tonify Mm -hmm. the chi, tonify your blood. And so there's a place for meat in the diet.
0: Yeah, I I share your beliefs on this one. Um, And I think, you know, it it really just be, it's about consumption levels. Yes. I mean, if you look at some of these cultures where, you know, there's the greatest preponderance of centenarians, et cetera, some of the blue zones, you know, meat is included in those diets, but it's generally included as um, something to provide additional flavor mm-hmm. and not as, like, the absolute main course 16-ounce, you know, mm-hmm. sirloin or something like that. Yeah. And um, so for us, you know, we uh, we don't consume a lot of red meat, but from time to time, you know, we'll, we're we actually fairly regular fish eaters, and from time to time we'll have, like, like as you say, some uh, ethically raised... Um, organic meat and I think yeah. there's um, I think you know there's obviously a lot of bioavailability of certain kinds of compounds in meat which um, that you can also get through a plant focused diet it's just a little bit more difficult and you have to probably yeah. know a little bit more about what you're eating um, but uh, yeah it certainly is a incendiary <laughs> topic. I think we're both super into the regenerative agriculture community. And, you know, I just don't know if there are enough grasslands on an acreage basis in the world for people to eat regeneratively raised um, beef at the same consumption levels that people are eating it now. So I think, you know, regardless where we come out on this issue, I think it's just, it's about lowering overall consumption eating higher quality in moderation um and then obviously you know we can talk about the we can argue about the ethical dimensions yeah. uh, of it so <laughs> yeah i agree sure. with you i
1: mean i think every if everybody ate less meat that is would be that's a critical piece for sure and i also think um you know eating local to where you live is really important and that can also relate to meat consumption mean you know even related to fish or things like that i mean i think one of the biggest problems is that you know we also over consume fish and we're flying fish you know across the world you know for sushi in middle america and whatnot so i think the more yeah. we try to eat locally where we live that's also one of the things that can really help you know heal the planet and, and our bodies
0: yeah so As we're lingering around fish and specifically when I think about fish, I think of like the the small bottom of the food chain kind of oily fish, Mm -hmm. sometimes known as the smash fish. So sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, herring. Um, Not all on the top of my list in terms of flavor per se, Um, but they're certainly high in omega threes, which are anti-inflammatory. So I wonder you know, we talked a little bit about pro inflammatory foods. I wonder what some of your top anti inflammatory foods would be.
1: I think, you know, to keep it really simple, it's well, I think using culinary herbs, so like things like oregano, rosemary, parsley, cilantro, thyme, I mean, those have such huge um, health benefits and uh, anti-inflammatory benefits and you don't need a lot of them. So those are great to have around just to use in your everyday cooking. Um, but then when you're at the grocery store, I think the easiest way to keep it simple is to choose things that are super colorful, right? Because all of those plant pigments have very, very strong anti-inflammatory properties. Um, you know, so obviously like blueberries and wild blueberries and strawberries and red cabbage and, um, oranges and you know everything that is brightly colored and has the carotenoids and the anthocyanins mm. and all of that those tend to be very very anti-inflammatory and then it's like just eating real food i think that you know it's like twofold it's like asking yourself am i eating the the foods in the standard american diet that cause inflammation like making sure you're not eating the oils we talked about and all of that it's just as much obviously as what you're cutting out and then what you're adding and so um you know and eating foods that you know for some people might be easy to digest like doing soups you know soups are a really great way to increase your digestive capacity because they're really easy to digest and you can add things like ginger and lemongrass and things like that or fresh herbs or rosemary and and things like that so um I think soups are super, super great for people that have digestive issues like colitis and things like that. It's a really great way to get nutrition in and lower inflammation at the same time.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Nice. So let's move on a little bit to Urban Remedies specifically. First of all, I, I love the name. Uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording about branding and and that we're both hand wringers when it comes to branding and look and feel and design. Um, You know, I have a very specific association with the name Urban Remedy. um, But I'm curious what the provenance of it was for you.
1: Yeah. You know, I when I had my acupuncture practice, I started Urban Remedy, you know, through my retreats that I was doing and people kept wanting the food and everything. And then I was making these snacks these, these banana brittle snacks. And it was just like dehydrated banana with coconut and like some other things They were super good. And um, I was, pa- people wanted them and they buy every single bag. And then I was like, what am I gonna call this? And I was sitting with a friend of mine and we were like, well, this is kind of like the urban an answer to, you know, our busy lifestyle. And so we were like just tooling around with a bunch of different names and Urban Remedy came up. And it was really funny because when I first started Urban Remedy and, and stopped my acupuncture practice and people were thinking of investing, they were like, some people would be like, I, I love what you're doing, but I hate the name. Like, it's the worst name. And I was like, oh, I, I love it. So we're just going to keep it. But um, some people really, really love it. And for some people, they don't completely get it. Hmm. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know why anyone w- would not resonate with it. I mean, for me... It sort of suggests how modern urban life is essentially hijacking our Mm -hmm. adaptive mechanisms. So uh, all of these kind of urban comforts that are relatively new to human existence, you know, 24-7 food accessibility, on-demand entertainment, you know, endless technology, even temperature control, all of these comforts in a way use our own adaptive mechanisms against us in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, you know, we're actually designed um, and have evolved to withstand a good deal of discomfort, yeah. you know, scarcity, darkness, temperature fluctuation, you know, et cetera. And these adaptive mechanisms actually confer a health benefit in relation to some of these discomforts, but our kind of modern urban life is like so cushy Yeah. Um, that, you know, we're in an endless feeding cycle or we're getting blue light at night, you know, or, you know, we're never getting too hot or we're never getting too cold. Yeah. You know, we're always sitting in a chair. We're always wearing big padded sneakers. You know, we're never squatting. We're never making ourselves yeah. uncomfortable. And you're providing the remedy (laughs) for for some of those modern urban comforts that I think are really undermining health. Um, So for me, it really works.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, So you decided to become a B Corp. And I wonder if you could explain to folks what a B Corp is. And what are some of the criteria associated with being a B Corp? And and why was that important to you?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I have to give credit to one of our investors, Trip Baird, because he... um,
0: Oh, I know Trip. Do you
1: know Trip? Yeah. Sure,
0: that's great. Yeah. He's so great.
1: So he, you know, one day he emailed me. He was like, Nika, you know, you guys are already doing all the stuff to be a certified B Corporation. And, you know, he most of his, por- I think maybe all of his portfolio companies are certified B um, corporations. So we, you know, I looked into it, and I didn't even know about it. I've been like, my head was so down with Urban Remedy, I didn't even know what it meant or anything. Um, but a very, on a very simplistic level, it means that there are companies that are doing good in the world on different fronts, meaning it's how you treat your employees, how you pay your employees. You know, an example might be, you know, when I started Urban Remedy, you know, we have people that are in the um, leadership roles and then people that are making food in production. And I made a decision early on that the people in production would have the same holidays, the same health care, you know, all of that. So that is like one of the foundation, that would be one of our pieces of being a B Corp is having the, the, that kind of equality, um, depending on your role in the company. Um, you know, being certified organic is a big part of our certified B, uh, corporation, um, you know, which is, you know, helping soil health and the environment and offering food that's healing to people on the planet. Um, it's, it's how your board looks and how you make decisions. Are you making decisions just for monetary gain or are you also making decisions based on what's best for your employees and your, the communities that you live in? So some of th- those are kind of the basic, um, tenants and foundations. And then you have to fill out a lot of paperwork and, you know, get, you know, you probably know, um,
0: yeah, well, I it's asked a lot you of for work. that. I did. It's a lot of work. So I yeah. did it for wanderlust. Oh, cool. Um, we were f- maybe five or six years in before we were inspired to to get the certification. And yeah, it was a lot of paperwork. Yes. And w- year over year, we kept failing to meet the requirements mm. because they were so stringent. But it was a really great way to... Um. To, to kind of a, a really good check and balance on the business itself, yeah. because, you know, we started with this like great social mission. Yeah. And then when you kind of looked under the hood, were we really checking the boxes and aligning, you know, the profitability of the company and the return that, promise to shareholders etc that is kind of in a typical operating agreement or articles of incorporation where we really balancing that with you know a double bottom line or triple bottom line or even quadruple yeah. bottom line in terms of what does our governance look like how were we treating our workers mm-hmm. were we meeting environmental standards and with wanderlust we were a festival business so it was really hard to meet the environmental standards mm-hmm. because people were we had a significant carbon footprint because people were coming in from all over the world to go to our festivals so we had to really address that yeah through running a carbon neutral festival and you know you know carbon offsets which I don't know if they're kind of a little bit of window dressing on on that particular side but it was I think a really, really good exercise for us. And we eventually got the certification, but I, but I know how hard it it is. (laughs) So that's why I wanted to ask you about it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And you, yeah. And I, I love that you're right. Like when you're going through the process, you, you think about, you think about things that you hadn't thought about before. You're like, Oh, I didn't even realize I could be doing this better or that better. And I think it's a great way, um, for businesses to also attract talent, because I think now that people are understanding more what it means, people wanna be part of companies um, that are doing good in the world. And so it's a great way to, we have such a great culture at Urban Remedy, and it's just a great way to kind of showcase your culture and to um, attract people that are like-minded and and inspired, right, To, to be doing the same things that you're doing.
0: Absolutely. And if you look at the metrics by which a company should be judged, or I might even extrapolate and say uh, the metrics upon which a society should be judged, um, it's got to be more than just maximizing return to shareholders or maximizing profit. Because when that's the only metric, what you get is an incessant, Exercise in externalizing all your costs or all of your expenses. So we talked about big food for a minute before, yeah. but they are an amazing example of an industry that externalizes most of its costs. Yes. So they buy GMO corn under the true cost of, of production, synthesize it into high fructose corn syrup products, sell that, below the true cost of production sort of at artificial low prices. So then what happens? Well, people consume them because they're cheap, and then they get sick, and they yeah. get diabetes, and yeah. it drives healthcare costs up. And who ends up paying for that? Well, consumers, taxpayers, et cetera. And so it's really an externalization of big food's costs there. But yes. if they were to internalize those costs, they'd have to change the way that they yeah. work and the metrics for what it meant to be a successful company wouldn't just be the bottom line but it also might be the health of the people that yes. consume the product, yes. right? Yeah, so. no,
1: it's so true. And if you look at our farming subsidies, it's really interesting because um you know people always say why is organic food so expensive? Well, organic food is just food kind of grown in its normal way. It's so expensive right. because we give so much farm money to farms that are cotton, corn, um, soy and make all these things, like you just said, exponentially cheap and inexpensive. So people think that that is, like you said, the true cost. When really, if if we could give some subsidies to organic farming and healing the soil, I mean, imagine what could happen. It would be incredible. And I think it's really interesting what you said because it's like you're showcasing like the sick system that we live in. It's like we're feeding people in general, you know, people are eating food that makes them sick, you know, and then they, and I used to this was I always used to see people in my practice like this, they would come in, you know, they were eating the food that caused inflammation. And then they would be on, you know, people would come in and they'd be like, I don't even believe in what you're doing. But I've literally been to every single doctor, I'm still sick, I'm taking six medications, one, because I have this side effect or that side effect. And it's this cycle, right, of, You know you get sick you might have some inflammatory condition and so then you get on medications that might help with some of the symptoms that you're having and then you have to take other stuff or other symptoms based on that medication and you really get in this cycle it's really sad and people aren't taught um you know how to just maybe tweak their diet a little bit or how important sleep is or how important it is to you know truly have connection to your body and make sure you're not holding in stress and whatnot. And, um, it's very sad, you know, because I think there should be, uh, you know, our, our medical system leaves out a bunch of really important things that could really empower people to take more control of their health.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, if you look at the most prevalent diseases now, what we call the chronic diseases, Um, I mean these are not, uh, we often think of like heart disease and diabetes and stroke and Alzheimer's, et cetera, as natural causes of death or natural causes of disease. But they're not natural at all. Totally. They're actually, um, you know, human-made primarily uh, or at least human-contributed diseases and... um, and yeah as you say too often we're looking for the most reductionist answer mm-hmm. so you have cardiovascular disease okay we'll take a statin yes. or there's a weed growing in the garden spray some glyphosate on it without thinking about what are the downstream impacts of doing that beyond reducing you know the endogenous creation of cholesterol for the statin or you know the destruction of a particular weed in a garden well there are so many other implications to doing something like that, but we tend to kind of think in this kind of, uh, you know, reductionist w- way when we're dealing with symptoms,
1: yeah, and instead and, of yeah. you
0: know seeing things as sy- systems and and understanding the root causes.
1: Yeah, and that goes back to we were talking about a little before ago, which is. You know, the Western view of looking at the body is looking at the body as a machine and, you know, just looking at that part. And the beautiful thing about Chinese medicine is everything is based on the interconnectedness and the theory um, that we're all connected. And, you know, what is good for nature is good for us. And what is good for you is good for me and just how, you know, everything is related and interconnected. And um, as well, you know, as looking at at our bodies like a garden and how, you know, to be healthy and prevent disease before disease starts, you know, there's this great, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but in Chinese medicine, there's a picture of a, a human standing and their feet is on the ground and the roots are going into the, into the ground and their arms are up kind of like a tree to heaven and it's like you know um looking at humans between heaven and earth and how um the roots represent nature right and our connection to nature and our surroundings which is our food and where we live and you know honoring the land that we live on and then our connection to god or spirit um which is also our connection to self And, um, unfortunately in our, in our culture and the way we're brought up, we don't really have a connection to nature, even to our food. You know, most kids have never seen a chicken lay an egg or, you know, how milk comes from a cow. Um, or things like that. So we really have like this, such a deep disconnection to our natural world where food comes from, or, you know, some kids don't even have never been to a park or seen the ocean. And I think that creates a level of sickness or imbalance in the body.
0: My kids, we live in Los Angeles, so it's urban even though we live in a relatively beautiful part of Los Angeles, so we're lucky, but um, my kids went off to a farm camp, up oh. sort of more closer to your neck of the woods, but nor- farther north near Jenner, just okay. inland from Jenner. And they were up there uh, for the month of July for a couple years. And it just absolutely changed their understanding and their relationship with the natural world. Yeah. Um, and they came back, first of all, they were a different shape when they came back. Oh. They were like, you know, because they were out wor- yeah. you know, working on the farm every day. Um, but they just had, a you know, an unbelievable understanding for where their food came from. Yeah. And uh, it was really, really special. That's um,
1: really
0: cool. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I highly recommend just, any opportunity um, to go and actually visit a farm, you know, there's a yes. wonderful farm that we go and visit near here called Apricot Lane Farms. Oh, yeah. They made yeah. a um, the it. documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. Yeah, and and they do farm tours on the weekends and pop up a a market on on Saturdays. Yeah, and we go up there maybe twice a year. Not so
1: cool.
0: And, and it's just an amazing way to to reconnect with your food and where yeah. it comes from. And, yeah. And you know, if you not. Can't,
1: yeah. And if you can't visit a farm, even just getting out into nature and just taking quiet time to just watch the trees and how they're still or how they're moving or how they grow and just, um, yeah, just finding some way to connect to the natural world is mm-hmm. is very healing.
0: Yeah. So another question I want to ask you, just as an entrepreneur, um, because I've had many, many friends with the highest, most noble intentions start um, companies, often food companies or CPG companies, as sometimes they're referred to. And they hit a point where they're just bumping their head on the ceiling of how to grow. And then they have to make certain kinds of compromises, whether that's HPP with juicing or, or um, you know, in many cases, they've had to sell their companies to Coke or Pepsi or whatever, just because they control all the distribution mechanisms, etc. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the challenges of scaling a for-profit company in alignment with your highest principles? <laughs>
1: Uh, I, there's so many challenges. I mean, you know, when I started Urban Remedy, I built out a little kitchen in CNRFL and I was like, I'm just, this is so great. I had raised a million dollars just really easily and I thought, I'm never going to need any more money. And, you know, this is it for me. And um, in six months, you know, I outgrew that kitchen. And so for me, it's been just such a crazy journey. Um, I'm very lucky because I do have investors like trip, who, you know, and some of my other investors who, um, share our mission of food is healing and really believe in it. So we have not had any issues with, you know, any of our investors, like wanting to not use organic produce or not be certified organic. And so that's been really great, but there has been a lot, I mean, there's been so many challenges, you know, and there's still so many things that I want to change, like, you know. Nobody's really cracked the code on fresh food um, and being able to sell it nationally, right? Because you have to have a long shelf life and you worry about purge and all that kind of stuff. So um, we we sell our fresh nationally and, um, you know, we use plastic containers, for example, and the plastic containers are 100 percent recycled. So the thought is that if you recycle it, you know, it stays in the waste stream but there's no perfection right because there's no perfect packaging for example there's no packaging that's 100% compostable that keeps the shelf life that like meets all the criteria that you need to scale and so you know that would be one thing where i'm like it feels really shitty to be you know putting this gorgeous organic food in a plastic container right but there's really no other options and you know one of the things in that arena that i've decided is like you know then there's gmo containers that are made of pla but then they're all made from gmo corn and Mm wheat and i was like oh i'm not going to put certified organic food in a gmo container and support (laughs) that industry so there's a lot of things that you don't wouldn't necessarily think about and there's a lot of really difficult decisions that have to be made Um, you know and you kind of just have to make the decisions knowing you know, you have to weigh the cost and the benefit for your integrity in the business. But HPP is a great example. Um, all of my juices used to be in glass and um, California changed the law. And so you cannot sell juice legally to a Whole Foods or any retailer unless it's been either heat pasteurized or HPP treated. And so what, Right. So, what's the lesser of the two evils is HPP, which is, you know what it is, but I'll just say in case somebody doesn't know. So you make your juice, it's cold, and then it goes through a cold water process where it puts cold water pressure on the bottle. So it kills any potential pathogens. It's called a five log reduction. And so, and, and interestingly, I mean, I, I was dying, like I did not want to do that. And I just would sit up at night and I'm like, I just can't even believe we have to do this. I don't even know if I want to drink the juice, if it's HPP. And interestingly, people started to want HPP juice, like some, like pregnant women were like, oh, is this HPP? Because then I'm insured. I don't have to deal with the, you know, those top pathogens. Um, But it's, you know, there's things like that when illegality comes into it that you kind of, there's either you close your business or you kind of have to go with the flow of things. And thankfully, it's a cold process. And so, you know, you still get enzymes and vitamins and nutrients and whatnot, um, but it's not perfection, you know, and, you know, and then when you get to a certain level, I think the you know, one of the most other difficult things is that, you know, I'll meet like a small purveyor and I'm like, oh, I want to use this really cool ingredient. I'm so excited. And then either you they can't scale with you or the Q&A person is like, oh, their facility's not quite up to the standard. And so it leads you to a place where for me, it feels a little, I like have to be with some things like a little less creative, right? Because you have to work with people that can scale at a specific level, which means they have to be, they have had to grow at a certain level. And so, um, I mean, those are some of the things that I find challenging. And sometimes I'm like, Oh, it used to be so fun when I had a small, just a few stores and I could just do whatever I wanted. And, and um, so there's but I, but I also am so grateful that we are national and that, um, you know, people could find certified organic food at their local whole food stores rather than eating like a salad with, you know, we were talking about like canola oil or something like that. So, um, yeah, so there's a cost and yeah. a benefit with everything.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for being so honest about that. I mean, yeah. uh, and uh, I've had to confront it all my life as a conscious capitalist is, you know, where can you make legitimate compromises and where do you have to completely hold the line? Yeah. And, you know, when we were running Wanderlust and we had one festival, you know, it was such a We do have a lot of nostalgia, right, for those days when the business was like super young and super pure and very homespun and essentially run out of your garage, you Mm -hmm. know, quote unquote, you know. Yeah. And those are wonderful days. But then, you know, if you really want to bend the arc uh, of how a certain industry does business, then do you want to have impact and you want to scale and then what are the obstacles and the systems and structures that have been created that create barriers for, you know, scale to move along with integrity. And I think, you know, you just always really have to use your, your best judgment and, you know, be as transparent about it as possible. So I'm, I'm really, um, grateful that, you know, for, for your transparency, um, on it. And, uh, Yeah, I think this is part of the, you know, what being an entrepreneur (laughs) is like.
1: Well,
0: I look Um, and I
1: I see that there is really not a lot of certified organic um, all day parts companies out there. And if you're going to get a salad, if you're going to eat out, it's really hard to find super clean food. Like most restaurants you go to, if you say are using canola oil or soy oil, they all do. And, you know, they need to do it for their costs. And I totally get that. So, but I feel really happy that Urban Remedy is like, it's kind of like a food safe zone. Like we never use gluten, dairy, seed oils, you know, white sugar, white flour, any of those things. So we've stayed in that construct. So that's the most important thing to me, I would say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, What about... The experience of being a female entrepreneur, um, I would say that I find that there is an increasing number of very successful female entrepreneurs within this space. And like like you, I've gone to Expo West for many, many, many years. I kind of watched it transform from a smaller kind of conference to this juggernaut that feels almost more like a venture capital conference than, um, and it was very, very male dominated for many, many years and overwhelmingly it probably still is. But, you know, to be honest, most of my friends now who are starting businesses in this space are women. So I was wondering, I'm wondering like what your experience has been, has it been, have you confronted specific kinds of challenges?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yes, I'm trying to think of what I can actually share with you, but I would say that, you know, even now I love, I have a, you know, a great board, but I'm the only female, you know, on our board and it would be great, you know, to have another female on the board. And I think, um, for women, especially if you're starting out, you know, as a creative, or you're doing something as a passion project, and then you have to take funding. You know, there's this really specific language that is spoken that a lot of us don't speak. And so, um, you know, like, I remember when I first got funding, you know, being in meetings and really not understanding what, anybody was talking about I didn't know what roi meant I didn't know what um you know so many of the the sayings mean and I and I've learned so much over time it's been a great experience but it's very intimidating to come into that uh you know to come into that arena and not, you know, fully like I'm an acupuncturist, right. So I could talk anything about Chinese medicine and health, but like finance and investment and, you know, all of that stuff was really foreign to me. And it's, it's, it was very intimidating and scary. So when you're in that situation, sometimes you can shrink and, you know, it's very right. intimidating. And so, you know, I would say when I first, I'll, I'll give you two examples. When I first took funding, um, I had a logo that I loved and it was really feminine. And the company, the guys that I was working with were like, you know what, we're just going to change your logo and, you know, do all of this. And they came out with this just like super masculine logo and, you know, maybe renamed some things. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, I mean, I was thinking, I, this is so not Urban Remedy. I hate it. But I didn't say anything because I didn't, I didn't want to rock the boat and sound like a bitch, right, an ungrateful woman. And so over the years... I still struggle with it, but over the years, I've had to, you know, learn that, well, if somebody thinks I'm a bitch, then that's fine. Um, I try to think from a loving place, but I do think that that saying is true. Like when a male, when a man, we're more in a meeting like that and a man says, well, this is what I think is right. And, you know, X, Y, and Z reasoning, people are like, wow, that's a strong man. But a lot of times when a woman comes off and does that, we're still considered difficult or, you know. That and it's it's sad, but I do think that is alive and well. Um, and I've had one other situation where um, and I I'm not working with this person anymore, but where you know, raises were being brought up um between my CEO and I. And I hope the person doesn't ever listen to this podcast, but um, you know, they were like, Oh, Anika doesn't really need a raise and the CEO does. And um, that was the first time I remember I was actually genuinely furious. And the person said, well, what, you know, Nika? what else can you offer to the company? And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I create every single product. I like, I manage all the creative, like, I mean, I don't need to list off all the things I do, but it was like almost having to
0: Justify yourself Justify myself. Up. I yeah. started
1: this company. This is my vision, you know, and right. um, being in that situation was the first time I ever really felt what it feels like. And it was really a difficult situation to be in.
0: I can relate to some of the the terminology and the taxonomy of, of business and, you know, I didn't go to business school either. I was a musician okay. <laughs> and then I was in the music industry and I sat in, you know, dozens upon dozens of meetings sort of nodding my head, <laughs> smiling, being like, I have no idea what they're saying. And you know, that can be very dangerous, Yeah. you know, because if you don't know what, you know, uh, you know, preferred equity is or something, (laughs) you know, you can kind of all of a sudden you find that your shares are buried under a whole (laughs) a host of other shares of people who have liquidation preference over you. You know, but this is part of growing up, you know, it's like, and learning. Yes. And, um, and being honest with yourself about like what you don't know,
1: yeah,
0: and and uh, and being curious um, and learning. But I think you know, so many of us who start companies, we're actually coming from a place of the soul or a creative place, yeah. Um, and we don't necessarily have all of the business chops,
1: yeah. Um, so I'm so you glad know, you get- shared that. I'm not alone because I always, you know. And then it's so good to remind people, like to ask questions. And I always tell people, get a really great lawyer because you might not ever really understand it. Like for me, I don't even want to. It's not that I don't want to understand it, but I'll be like, okay, this is something a lawyer can explain to me at a high level. Because it's very nuanced and very intricate and um, difficult to interpret a lot of levels
0: i i totally agree honestly one of the best things i ever did was found the world's greatest small little corporate law firm and anytime i have a question and i still have tons yeah um you know i can be dumb in private with them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know to say hey uh, what does this mean or you know can yeah. you help me develop some language around this that you know protects the company etc so um
1: that's you so know never good.
0: never be too proud well to if you didn't learn anything right on
1: this podcast today that would be like a, one of the best takeaways to <laughs> so yeah, have totally. a good attorney to explain yeah. it to you yeah that is really good
0: <laughs> so uh, you, where can you find Urban Remedy products now and can you just discuss a little bit about the different businesses that you have within Urban Remedy because uh yeah. primarily your products business right
1: Yeah So we're uh, multi-channel, which has made things very difficult. You know, in the beginning, I was like, we could sell things online and, you know, sell to retail stores. I mean, and have our own retail stores, you know, and sell in businesses like Whole Foods. And so we used to have a a lot of retail stores in California. And now we've downsized. We have five stores, which we are going to keep open um, in the Bay Area San Francisco, Marin County and the East Bay. And then um, we're primarily in Whole Foods. We have some in a lot of Whole Foods. We have these kiosks where it's branded Urban Remedy and we have all the day parts in there. And then we're in, you know, a bunch of other natural grocers and we're in Kroger. You can find some of our shots and juices in Kroger, which was super exciting for us. Um, we're in delivery apps, like you can order Urban Remedy on Amazon, Amazon Prime, if it's at your local Whole Foods store, um, and then we ship from our website um, direct to consumer. And so there's a bunch of meal plans on there, um, but you can order almost all of our products on our website, and we ship it directly to your door. So there's a lot, there's lots of ways to find Urban Remedy. But we're really focused right now on uh, growing, you know, our presence in Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. So we're, lo- we're You can find us at Whole Foods on all over. The, obviously, the West Coast, the East Coast, um, and then we're in the Rocky Mountains. Um, we're exp- hopefully expanding into Texas. We're in Philadelphia. So we're. Um, if you look on our website, if anybody's interested, there's a locations page that shows all the places that we are offered.
0: Amazing. And my sense is, is that you're always envisioning the next thing. So I wonder if there are any little um, intimations of products or just different creative projects that you're just starting to cook up now.
1: Yeah, we have two, I have two um, things that I'm really excited about that are one just launched and the next is launching in the next five weeks. Um, so we have, I developed a sun square, which is, I don't know if you ever had it, but it's like a, a sun, a sunflower butter square with chocolate on top. And it's kind of sweet and salty. It's really, really good. And, um, I made a line of those. So I have the regular one. And now I have one with lion's mane and coffee. Like it's a kind of salty coffee flavor. I'll send you some.
0: Mm, And
1: then the last one is a crispy rice. And it's kind of like my play on a crispy rice chocolate bar. And then, yeah, so that's a whole new platform that we just launched. And then the other platform that I'm so excited about is I, I developed these cookies a long time ago that are all dehydrated and grain free, um, a chocolate chip cookie, but I have reformed that a little bit and then added a oatmeal, walnut cookie and mm. a double chocolate. And they are not to brag, but they are so good. I can't even keep them <laughs> in my house because I literally eat them all. There's like, um, a bag of cookie bites and then there's a single cookie. So we're launching those soon. And I'm so excited because they are free of white sugar and they don't have any dairy and two of the versions are grain-free. And so it's a great, I, I love it because it's a great example of like, right, you could eat a cookie that has, you know, like corn syrup or white sugar and white flour, and that's going to promote inflammation. Like I'm just going on what we were talking about before, you know, but these cookies that I've developed actually would be lower inflammatory cookies, right? Because they don't have white flour, they don't have white sugar, they're grain free. Um, they have a really low, um, very low carb net carbs, except the oatmeal one, because that's made with oatmeal. But, um, and they're absolutely delicious. So it's so great. It's like a kind of fun mm. indulgent snack that you can have without feeling guilty.
0: Yeah, they sound amazing. I wonder, do you have a go-to sweetener that you use?
1: You know, I like, I've been using Stevia for so many years and a lot of people Mm -hmm. really don't like it. Um, but I even have Stevia plants and I like Stevia. I use it in my matcha and my tea. I, I, I feel that it's kind of like cilantro. Like some people taste a soapy flavor. Um, but I use for me personally, I know a lot of people don't like it. So I try not to use it in too many products, but, um, I like stevia, I like monk fruit, Um, you know, I'll use like, if I'm gonna use something that is gonna spike my blood sugar, I'll do like a a honey or a Monica honey or something like that. But I'm the kind Mm -hmm. of person like, I don't even have white sugar in my um, kitchen because I just, I don't need to use it because there's so many other things that I can use. Not that white flour, I mean, I think like with all this being said, you also have to enjoy your life. And if you eat some white sugar, like don't be hard on yourself. But um, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. But I don't I agree.
1: it in general. Yeah,
0: yeah. And well, I know that you wrote a book. Do you ever, ever have any other plans or inspirations to write another book?
1: I do. I mean, I would love to write another book. I wrote my book so long ago, and I look at it and I'm like, oh, there's so many things I would change. I right when I was starting Urban Remedy and I just gotten divorced and I had, you know, my son was like one years old, you know, I got an offer to write a book and that was when I was the CEO, head of procurement, HR. And so (laughs) I wrote this book pretty quickly while I was busy. And so I wasn't really able, I don't feel like I, there's a lot of things I may have done differently, but I've been thinking about it. I would love to do another book that was more lifestyle and really talked about, we were talking about before, helping people to understand their innate healing capacity and the powers of just simply living in harmony with nature. And, um, I think you and I talked about it a little bit we had a conversation, you know, just about how, you know, there's so many biohacking things and science things, you know, where people are optimizing their health, which is great. And I, I, I love reading and learning about all of that, but I think that, It can be overwhelming for a lot of people and just, you know, getting back to the really simplistic things of sleeping and, and connecting, calming your nervous system and just like all of these beautiful, simple things. um, I just feel like is such an amazing message to share because most people just really don't even think about those things. And so anyways, that's probably what my book would be about. Great. Yeah.
0: Well, I look forward to it. I hope yeah. you find uh can carve out the time to to, uh, to do it is yeah. uh it's a monumental task and it's hard to do in 5 minute increments yeah. as I'm finding right now. I'm trying to do trying to write a book. Yeah. And I, I and I have been relegated to writing like two sentences at a time and it is <laughs> not working very well. So I uh, I hope that you can find um a respite in your operational life to to do it because I know how much the world could benefit from it
1: yeah well I can't wait to read your book too when do you think yours is coming out
0: oh gosh I don't know that gestation period might be uh, quite long but I'm chipping away at it uh, my wife keeps encouraging me to like just clear two weeks and go to the desert so I'm gonna i am going to when I can do that and at least I like could that I.
1: idea that's great well I can't wait to read it sounds like it's going to be really interesting
0: cool well Nika it's been such a joy to be with you yeah. I, I hope to be with you in um, four dimensional space time sometime yeah Thank you for listening to my conversation with Nika Pasquale. She modeled her book, Urban Remedy, after the retreats she led at her home in Northern California, and it is designed to help individuals break out of bad habits, reset routines and intentions, and improve their health and nutrition. Now, if you enjoy this show, well, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you may have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation week over week, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than a hundred courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, and you can check it out for free for 14 days, no strings attached, at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with comments or suggestions or criticism at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.